from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm your host, Craig Sauer, Senior Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. Today's guest is Andrew Downen, the Managing Director of Research at the Filene Research Institute. Prior to his current role with the Credit Union Think Tank, Downen oversaw the group's I3 program, which works with groups of credit union leaders to tackle some of the industry's most flummoxing problems. One of the industry's current problems, according to Filene Research, is consumers' anxiety about debt and taking out new loans. Downen writes about this debt anxiety in the CUNA Environmental Scan Report, a strategic planning resource for credit union leaders. In my interview with Downen at CUNA's Madison offices, I asked him about that research and how credit unions should position themselves in the evolving financial services landscape. I know you've been pretty busy lately. You've been traveling around uh, for filing events, other credit union conferences. Last time I ran into you was in an airport. That's right. Uh, so, you know, what? since you've been out in the world and talking to credit union people, what's kind of in the ether right now out uh, in the movement? Oh, yeah. So, so number one uh, thing that I'm hearing, and, and I think we probably chatted about this in the Chicago airport, is enough of the airport Cinnabons. We don't need those anymore. <laughs> but uh, now, um, so, so you know, we have the chance to talk with a lot of credit unions. I've been doing some strategic planning with credit unions, uh, speaking at a few events. And uh, there, there is a lot of question around kind of what is the future of the movement and where are we going? How can we continue to be competitive you know, this, this word disruption and uh, such a buzzword. And you know, I, I feel like it, uh, Filene, we, we live in the world of a lot of buzzwords. We've probably created some of the buzzwords ourselves. Um, but, you know, we talk so much about disruption and our financial institutions and credit unions are ripe for disruption. And um, we're hearing more and more credit unions really realizing that's something that they need to to think about and, and maybe not do anything about today, uh, but at least keep in the back of their mind that, um, you know, one of the analogies that I like to use um, is that when you think about the way in which members have interacted with credit unions in the past and really the way that, that credit unions have approached membership, this notion of primary financial institution that um, as the credit union, we want this member to look at us as their PFI, we want their checking, their credit card, whatever counts are coming to be. And that's been the way in which credit unions have operated forever. And kind of the analogy that I use is like a buffet. So if, if I'm hungry for pot roast or jello or anything in between, um, I can go to a buffet and I'm going to find it there and it's going to be halfway decent. It's basically a one-stop shop for food. And uh, that's historically how credit unions have looked at the product offerings. That if I can get you to see us as our PFI, you're going to eat our checking account and eat our credit card and uh, you know, all of the above. Um, and really what we're seeing because of the disruption from fintech startups and Silicon Valley you know, companies that have lots of capital that credit unions just cannot generate um, is that it's more like a food truck now where, uh, and the phone is kind of like the food truck festivals. You go to a park and up pulls the empanada truck and then you've got the cu cupcake truck and whatever else is coming up. And you can choose one or two things from each provider, and it's what they do best. And it's possible because of proximity and ease of use. And kind of the, the financial services equivalent of that is our smartphone. So you can have your credit union's app right next to it is Venmo or Acorns. It does investing or whatever. And it's, um, it's more difficult than ever to be the buffet provider. CUNA is spending a lot of time on credit union awareness right now. Uh, is that kind of the 
a big issue with with that as far as it's concerned is just getting the attention of the consumer uh having them actually know what a credit union is is, is that kind of a, a big aspect of that it, it can be it's not as big of an aspect as i think uh it should be honestly um so uh, i use a lot of food analogies so i'm going to use another food analogy here <laughs> so uh and, and and this isn't meant to to knock on credit unions that use this as their their marketing angle, but I I've seen a lot of credit unions that will use some variation of we're just like a bank but different, um, and I don't know that that is really the best way to inspire consumers to and educate consumers to see the difference philosophically and what really makes a credit union different from a bank. And so if I'm hungry, I can get food out of a vending machine or I can go to a five star fancy restaurant and I'm going to get food. The, the philosophy behind the, the, you know, the intent of you know, coming up with the recipes and the way in which it's served, completely different. And food isn't always food. And financial products aren't always financial products. And I think there's a huge opportunity for credit unions to kind of double down on the philosophical difference, to educate consumers as to why credit unions exist. Why have we been around for 100 years? What makes us different? Um, and there are implications as, uh, around the, the tax exemption, too. You know, if we can do a better job of educating members to really get what makes us different, it's not that we have the same checking accounts and we've got the same credit cards and, yeah, maybe they're half a percent less than the bank down the street, um, especially with millennials. Uh, you know, we hear all the time, and we've seen the research, that by and large millennials want to do business with companies that have a similar philosophy as them. And what a great opportunity for credit unions. So uh, give me, let me give you a little thought exercise. Um, yeah. Somebody comes in and says, Andrew, I want you to start a new credit union. You know, what does that look like in this new digital space for you? What, what, how would you approach that problem? Mm-hmm. So um, I would consider if even the term credit union is the best term to use. Um, credit union has a lot of history and legacy in the terminology, but I think one of the things that we see and hear, and, and you see some credit unions that are giving up the term credit union even, um, is that, you know, are we doing as good of a job just educating people on what the heck are we talking about when we use the term credit union? Uh, and it's not to say abandon it, but, you know, really consider, is there a way to explain it better? And if I was starting a credit union, wow, what a, what a cool opportunity that would be to start a credit union from the ground up. We don't see too many de novo new credit unions starting. Um, I would really look at you know my delivery channels and am I wringing out the most opportunity out of every channel based on how I think members are going to use the channel. So if I was starting from scratch, I would probably build a branch that was maybe a thousand square feet, not, not a palatial branch of the past, but a branch that really focuses on kind of the, the high touch, high intensity, high opportunity transactions. And those aren't teller transactions. Those oftentimes now aren't even new memberships. But um, we've got research that indicates that when people have a problem or a challenge with their account, they want to talk to somebody. So could I build a credit union where the branch becomes the best place around to talk to somebody about the problem or the challenge or the advice that you need to get from the credit union? And maybe not make the, best, the, the branch the best way to do a deposit or a cash withdrawal. Really be good at that on my app uh, and really understand that 
it may be behoove me as this magical uh, credit union CEO of the future to decide what I don't want to be the best at on every channel. I don't necessarily need to be the best at giving advice through a uh, app if I can do that well in my branch. I've never been asked that question before, and it's a really interesting one if I could start a credit from scratch. I'm thinking, too, about the talent piece, because you know, so much of what we talk about uh, and credit unions are concerned about, understandably, is around how can we uh, be competitive from a consumer perspective. And I would really think about how could I, from day one, uh, build my recruitment and development processes to be competitive on the talent side as well. You know, I think we, as credit union leaders, and we joke about this, but there's a lot of reality in this joke that you know, few people wake up on you know, the first day after they get their college degree and say, I'm going to go work at a credit union. I would love if people did that. And I just have never met anybody who's just said that. <laughs> a diploma in one hand, phone in the other hand, I'm about to call my local credit union to, uh, to yeah, apply for a job. And wouldn't it be great, not only to get the people who are coming out of school with the technical capability, maybe to an app developer, you know, a future CFO that's got an accounting degree from an Ivy League school or whatever that might be, but also kind of this pro-social focus for people that have the talent and the expertise and could probably get a job as an investment banker or you know, on Wall Street somewhere and are attracted to, again, getting back to this philosophy, what makes crediting a different you know what makes a crediting different and it's that philosophy and I, i'd love to be able to from day one establish a crediting that's able to hire the most talented individuals that have both the head and the heart uh, another thing i know that uh Filene is researching and doing research on is uh consumer debt uh yeah. and and where that's you know consumer attitudes towards debt yeah uh you wrote about that in the the e-scan report that's that came out in june um Talk to me a little bit about how uh, consumers are changing towards that versus maybe 20 years ago to today and maybe where it's going to go, do you think, in the future? Yeah, so so uh, not to be the bearer of bad news, but consumers don't really like debt. Um, that's probably not surprising. I mean, if you look at uh, the percentage of uh, Americans who smoke, it's actually higher. We have more smokers in this country than people who want to take out more debt. Um, so not that we're necessarily competing with cigarettes, but the, 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 we're competing with this mindset that, you know, by and large, consumers do not want to take out debt unless it's absolutely necessary. Uh, so we do research. Uh, we uh, survey a panel of over a thousand uh, consumers across the country every six months just to understand, you know, what are your attitudes uh, and what is your confidence to borrow over the next six months? And about nine out of ten uh, consumers say they have no intent to borrow in the next six months. Um, but we know that intent doesn't always equal reality. And if, if nine out of 10 consumers didn't intend to borrow, uh, we wouldn't see loan growth like we're seeing at credit unions. Uh, and really kind of it got us to think about, you know, how can credit unions kind of capitalize on what we'd call the spur of the moment lending decision? So I don't intend maybe to, to take out a car loan in the next six months, but Maybe uh, in July my car is going to break down or I'll be driving past a dealership and uh, the new model will catch my eye. And oftentimes these decisions to buy and then the need to borrow is based on a spur-of-the-moment decision. So it really gets down to how, as a credit union, are we making it easy for the member to apply for the loan, to get the approval, and to fund that loan. Um, and it, it's, it's an opportunity. 
And I think an area where credit unions need to, and we see some examples of this, but they need to do a much better job at just ease of use, making it easy for a member to do business with us. Um, it's kind of, it's quite unrealistic now to expect that a member is going to go into a dealership, find the car that they like, call me up, let alone drive into a branch, but actually talk to me to, to do a loan application. No, they want to do it online. Not even that. They want to go in already knowing what they're pre-approved for. And if as a credit union, I don't constantly have some dollar amount in front of my member that they can look at and go, oh, the spur of the moment is here. It's a random Saturday and I, I see this brand new sports car that I've been dreaming of. Oh yeah, I'm already approved for $40,000 for my credit union. I just have to you know, press a few buttons, whatever the, the experience is like. That's what's expected. We aren't competing necessarily. Well, we're definitely not competing with other credit unions. We're not necessarily competing with other financial institutions when it comes to ease of use. We're competing with Amazon. And the fact that Amazon is testing drones to deliver sneakers to people's homes in less than 30 minutes. If I can get sneakers delivered to my house in a half an hour, I sure as heck expect to be able to get a loan funded without having to walk into a branch. So there are a lot of fintech companies that are entering the lending space. Uh, what's kind of the state of, of how those fintech companies are doing? And, and are, should credit unions be very afraid of, of what, uh, what is happening in, in among the fintech lenders right now? Yeah, so you're seeing a lot of lenders that are out there, like SoFi is one that's really kind of uh, cornered the student lending space, and then others that are kind of uh, carving out their own niche. And this kind of goes back to that food truck. So you even see some fintech startups that aren't trying to be the, the you know, be all to end all lender. Uh, they're focusing on a specific loan product. Um, one of the the hurdles that a lot of fintech startups have, uh, and, and we hear about this around kind of fintech banking charters, is that they don't have the ability to act truly as a financial institution. They don't have the ability to get a charter like a, a for-profit bank or a not-for-profit credit union would. And that's something that credit unions have uh, really as an advantage. We've got built-in relationships with members. We've got the ability to offer a broad set of products. But you know there are indications that uh, the OCC or other regulators have been looking at these fintech charters to say, you know, would we allow them to tiptoe into operating like a bank or another financial services provider? So it's something that credit unions really need to pay attention to. Uh, it, it's a, we have to strike while the iron is hot. And I really do think it gets back to philosophy where, yeah, you may have competitors fighting for real estate on a smartphone. It's hard to sustainably compete on price. We know as an industry, we don't have the best message around ease of use. Let's talk about what it means to do business with us. Let's talk about the mission-driven focus of why we exist. So making the argument of by putting your money here, your money is going to be helping the community. Uh, it's not only helping you with a lower rate, and that's, uh, it's also helping your neighbor and other people that need loans at a good rate as well. Is that kind of the argument that you're looking to make? I, I, I think that that's a, that's a marketing message. That's an argument that would be appealing to more and more consumers. Um, and just think back over the last five years, uh, you know, move your money campaign from the early 2010s, uh, you know, better bank campaign, things like that. Um, and we've done a good job in membership growth, uh, industry-wide, movement-wide, is uh, stronger than it's been in, in years and decades. But we also need to transition from just getting more members through the door and getting those deeper relationships. So while it's the, the competitive pressures make it more difficult to get that PFI status, I think there's, some, there's an argument to be made 
that you know the, the philosophy if we really perfect the philosophical message we can get that pfi status so going back to some of the reasons why people that want to borrow uh, you know why 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 is there that re, you know resistance to taking on debt uh, that consumers have now that they didn't necessarily have in the past yeah yeah so so we we ask that question so we ask uh, both of people who don't want to take on debt and people who are, you know, the, the small handful, the, the 9% or so of respondents that are open to taking on more debt, you know, what is that trigger? And a lot of what we see is a you know, perceived lack of earning power. So we know that, you know, we're a few years out from the, the depths of the, you know, the financial crisis, but there's still a lot of uh, wonder and doubt on people's minds, um, especially uh, during a uh, climate of political uncertainty. Um, that, you know, there was a lot of uh, wonder on people's minds of, you know, what will the economy look like in six or nine months? Um, am I in a position today that might be eliminated tomorrow? I mean, we see so many more Americans that are earning money in what we'd call the gig economy, right? So like driving for Uber or doing consulting work. Um, and there isn't a lot of confidence that comes in knowing I'm going to get the same paycheck every two weeks um, if I'm having to... Uh, do that type of work. Not that that work is bad, but it's not necessarily historically how American workers have generated their pay. Um, so the, the, the perceived lack of earning power is, is a big issue. Um, we're seeing too, uh, particularly in, in certain ethnic groups, and we saw uh, uh, Hispanic respondents in particular, um, concerned about the impact on their credit score. So as we've, uh, as a country moved out of the financial crisis, our, our, many of our credit scores have taken a hit and they're starting to rebound. There's really a much more pragmatic view on you know, if I take out more debt, what will this do to my credit score? I've got this goal three to five years down the line of getting a mortgage, borrowing for a house, whatever that financial goal is. And, and people are paying more attention to that. And I think part of the reason for that is if you go back 10 years, most of us, if I were to ask you right now what your credit score is, I'm not going to ask you to share. <laughs> I've got thousands of people listening. You'd probably have a good sense of what your credit score is. That wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. Um, uh, there were rules in place that the processes weren't in place to really bring that visibility to credit score. So we know now better than we have in the past what our credit score is. And we have a general sense of how it's moved and how actions that we've taken have impacted that score positively or negatively. Um, so we're seeing more individuals really looking at maintaining or improving their credit score as a hurdle to taking out more debt. Do you feel like credit scores have been kind of gamified in a, in a certain sense by, by some com by companies that have made them more public, more available to consumers? Uh, Is that, was that kind of the, like, yeah. people are like looking at it and they're like, oh, I want to get it up. I want to. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, certainly the, the visibility, uh, Human nature is we want to see how we're doing compared to others. Uh, and you know, there are all sorts of examples of that. A local uh, utility bill will show me how much uh, energy I'm using compared to my neighbors. And uh, they're not yet sharing it. Maybe they will, but uh, there's the shame factor there. But I think in a sense, if, if, uh, if I know that my score is X and those who live around me have a score that's X plus some percentage, uh, the competitive nature of many humans is I want to get my score up. And, and so the visibility knowing in a sense kind of what impacts that um, and having some sort of gamification isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I uh, was a part of I3 for several years and had the, the, the great uh, joy of leading I3 for a couple years. 
And uh, gosh, I think it was like 2013, we had a team come up with a, a concept called the Great Credit Race. Um, and it was subsequently tied to another team that had a, a credit card product all around gamifying credit scores, specifically for millennials and of new borrowers to say, okay, this is a group that many of them don't have credit scores at all. Maybe they're being given uh, their first credit card, hopefully from a credit union, maybe from another competitor. This is the chance that they have to get on a, a good track with regard to credit. And so we had a couple of credit unions test this out. Um, all the opt-ins were all done. The compliance folks were happy. We've got to keep the compliance folks happy. Uh, and they basically had a competition where if you were in the, the top 10%, let's say, of uh, people whose credit scores were pulled in a particular quarter, you got an incentive or a prize. So they were really encouraging people to be the best that they could be, not only for themselves and compared to their peer. Um, and then we had the, the, the team say, well, what if we could wrap a product around that? So let's say you've got one of these credit cards that's tied to this great credit race. And if at the end of the month you are in the, the top 10% of credit scores, maybe the, the rewards points that we pay out would be increased by a multiple of two or something. So they were trying to tie incentives on the product to having a good credit score. It's pretty fascinating. Do you do you feel like millennials uh, in the future or even want to play the the credit game, the credit uh, score game? Is is I guess what the, the ultimate question I'm trying to ask yeah. is: Is credit score are credit scores going to be a thing thirty years from now? Yeah. It, 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 will that still exist in the same way that it does now? It's going to exist in a different way. It will, and and we're already starting to see some uh, signs that it's changing. So. It's been talked about in the press. Many credit unions have seen this. There have been modifications made to how a FICO score is calculated. Medical debt, for example, isn't as weighted as heavily as it may have been in the past. But we know that you know, there are millions of consumers that are what we'd call credit invisible. They're not scorable um, because either they have no credit um, or the types of credit that they've had aren't traditional. So maybe they're going to payday lenders that oftentimes, most times, aren't reporting on a credit report. Maybe uh, you know, I've got a, I've been paying my cell phone bill on time. Well, cell phones are pulling credit to see if I should give you that cell phone, but they're usually not reporting. And so I think that we're going to see the credit score as we know it today and kind of live and thrive by change the calculation, and we're starting to see other kind of non-traditional data points rolled in so that we're not just relying on credit score. And we're seeing artificial intelligence really play into this. Um, there was a research study that I had uh, seen recently. There was a, a fintech startup lender that uh, was in kind of the P2P lending space, and they were analyzing people who they had approved and kind of the subsequent performance. Did they pay on time? And they actually were drilling down and looking at the types of words that uh, individuals were using um, and other criteria in their application. So that, uh, it was found that people who exercise are you know, two, three, four times more likely to pay their loans on time. And believe it or not, people who would use the word God in their lending app, in their loan application, we're less likely to pay on time. And what's interesting about that isn't the the way in which those words led to repayment metrics or not, but it's really exposed kind of an ethical question. And at what point do credit scores, does our ability to kind of drill down into every data point possible become less than moral? So 
Craig, you're, I've got data on you, let's say, and I can predict with pretty good certainty what you're going to do 30 days from now. How ethical is it for me to take action on you today based on something that you haven't even done or based on a word that there was no intent for you to signal one way or the other if you're going to pay on time? It's just human nature to use whatever word you use. How ethical is it really for us to use these emerging data points to make decisions? And it's we don't know the answer yet. This is TBD. <laughs> this is a question that is to be determined. And it's only going to get more important. Is another one of the ethical dilemmas with that is that uh, depending on what data sets uh, or items are chosen, you might end up being uh, the algorithm or whatever you choose might end up be, uh, you know, discouraging lending to African-Americans yeah, yeah. or uh, to certain segments of the population that you don't necessarily want. You don't want to do that. Obviously, you don't want to have like, uh, that happen. Is that another one of the ethical issues? That oh, is, definitely. Is coming yeah, up? yeah, definitely. Um, and, and there is a huge regulatory aspect of, of this notion of big data and artificial intelligence and how we use that to make underwriting decisions. And it goes beyond just loan deci lending decisions. There are all sorts of decisions based on risk quantifications that credit unions are making every day. Um, there may come a time where some of these emerging data sources are found to be uh, discriminatory. And uh, again, uh, like, like we say with a lot of our recommendations for crediting, it's not to say you need to do this or you need to not do this. It's really what fits within your comfort level and your strategic uh, directives as an institution and what fits both um, legally and ethically. And it, it's a big area of concern right now. Well, we've had Concern and question, because there's some opportunity too. We've had I3 teams look at what if, based on that metric where we know people who exercise more are more likely to pay off their loan on time, what if we give people a rate discount based on the activity data that comes out of their Apple Watch? We know that uh, we're seeing this occur already in uh, the health insurance world. Um, certainly life insurance is using some of these data points to, to underwrite and price their product. There is, an, there is a rational data-driven argument to be made to use some of that data from a lending perspective, but rational data-driven doesn't always equal ethical. And this is a, who would have ever thought that right. we'd have an, a conversation about ethics when it comes to loan pricing, but um, we're heading in that direction. Uh, in, interesting issue. I mean, I, I think that applies to so many different things with data. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts about how credit unions or anybody should approach some of these thorny issues that come up? Is it Do you really have to focus on making sure you have a diverse uh, board, a diverse uh, staff? I mean, do you think that will help sort some of those things out? Yeah, so so our first recommendation is uh, hire somebody who has a PhD in uh, philosophy. No, is that, <laughs> <laughs> that should be a criteria for all boards, uh, yeah. at least one lesson in uh, philosophy and ethics. No, I, I think you've hit on something, though. Um, and we talk about this a lot in our innovation work at Filene when we work with I3 and credit unions where we do innovation immersions and things like that, is this concept of empathy. And really, whatever decision we make as a credit union, um, on a new product, a feature set, a pricing change, whatever the decision may be, it really needs to come from what is the challenge or the problem or the issue from the mind of the member, from the, the lens of the member. Um, is it desirable? Are, are we making a decision that will be desirable for members and the membership as a whole? Because we've got kind of that, it's not, it's not a tug of war, but it's really too... Uh, 
two sets of stakeholders living together. So you've got the end member sitting in front of you and the decisions that you'll make based on their needs. And then you've got the membership as a whole. And sometimes the decisions don't always line up. Yeah, you may be sitting in front of me and I'd love to make a loan to you, but based on whatever data I'm using, it might not be in the membership's best interest. Um, but it all has to come back down to what are the needs of the member? Do I have empathy for you know what, what they're going through? Am I truly designing this product or making this decision based on what's best for those whom I'm serving? Um, and that's a decision that each credit unit has to make on their own. I think you know we've got 58, 5,900 credit unions in the U.S., each with differing types of members, differing types of goals, different financial conditions, and it's hard to come down and say one path is right for every credit union. But I think if every credit union go to, goes down the path of empathy, um, it's going to be right for all 5,800 of them. So we kind of started this uh, because you're you're an author in the eScan report. So that's strategic planning for credit unions. And I want to leave credit union board people. Um, wh what should they? What should credit union leaders be thinking about as they go into strategic planning sessions? What kinds of things would you put in their ear to really be talking about, considering, and developing action plans on? Yeah. So uh, so three broad topics that I'm hearing from credit unions and also that we're kind of putting in credit unions' ears. Uh, and the first we touched on is talent. Uh, so we know that there is going to be a significant and dramatic um, uh, shift of expertise away from our industry and into the lap of retirement luxury um, at the CEO level and others. Um, our industry needs to develop, and individual credit unions need to, to develop talent roadmaps. We need to understand that we have a tremendous advantage in our philosophical differentiation that we can use to our benefit to get top talent uh, that's not only expert but also pro-social, as we talked about. Uh, so kind of making sure that that talent concern is front and center. It's one that will sneak up upon credit unions. Uh, this whole notion of buffet versus food truck. So it's not to say that we need to go app crazy and have 17 apps at, our, at each credit union but to understand that the way in which consumers consider their primary financial relationship is shifting, that uh, there isn't as much of a need to have that PFI relationship. How can we as a credit union uh, re-encourage that? There's a lot that can be done with relationship pricing. There's a lot that can be done certainly with ease of use to saying, okay, if I know that the, 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 the tug of war is pulling consumers away from doing everything with us, how can we in a very credit union way uh, encourage them to bring that uh, that business back. Um, and then the, the, the final uh, point that um, uh, I'm talking with crediting is a lot more. And anybody who's heard me talk knows I will continue to harp on this until my last breath, collaboration. I feel like as an industry, we have a tremendously missed opportunity to, to continue to collaborate together. If you look at deposit market share, if you look at uh, consumer loan market share, we're roughly about 10%. On a good day, on a bad day, we're 8%. Credit unions have 8%, roughly, deposit market share. Don't fight over the crumbs of the pie. Let's work together to get at that other 92%. Credit unions are at a disadvantage when it comes to scale. We've got 5,800. I know we've got just as many banks, um, but... By and large, we don't have the, the number of large credit unions like we see in the commercial or the for-profit banking side. 
we have the ability and we have the the it's in our DNA to work together. Nothing makes me sadder than to talk with a credit union that sees their main competition being another credit union across the street. No, it's not. It is not. And how can we go beyond having that mentality of the credit union is my the other credit union is my enemy or my competitor to actually build out opportunities to collaborate together and not just say that we're going to collaborate. Maybe I work for credit union A and my expertise is on this product set that doesn't include mortgages and maybe credit union B has an expertise in mortgages. We already do this today with shared branching. We do this with ATM networks. We know that individually we don't have a very good ATM network as an individual credit union, but we've got networks that we've got shared branching networks. What if we were to do that on the product level? We don't, uh, you know, if I were as creating an A, willing to collaborate, and then this would take compliance, you know, there's all sorts of disclosures that would need to happen. But as a credit union board, would I be opening to collaborate with another credit union who has a better product expertise than I do? What if there were a product, a shared product network, like there is a shared ATM network or a shared branching network? Um, I think it's a, a great way for credit unions to put their money where their mouths are and act in a collaborative way versus just talk about collaborating. And it's a great opportunity for credit unions individually to stay uh, sustainable. I'll have more with Andrew down in next week. We'll continue our conversation and delve into his work on innovation at Filene. If you'd like to check out Downen's contribution to the CUNA Environmental Scan Report, visit cuna.org escan. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. And you can connect with me on Twitter at CUNA Craig.